0: Second Samuel chapter 14 this evening on our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us here tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and uh, they have Bibles. Just flag them, get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along with us. We do carry, uh, cover a fair amount of territory on the Sunday nights and you're a little bit lost without being able to follow along in a Bible of your own. Second Samuel, chapter 14, and uh, we remember that one of David's sons, a son by the name of Absalom, had uh, raped his half sister by the name of Tamar, who was the uh, she was the whole sister of another uh, son of David by the name of Absalom. And when David failed to respond uh, to this Uh, action of his son toward one of his daughters, uh, beyond just becoming angry over it when he heard it and be very angry. uh, Absalom waited two full years in order to kill Amnon uh, in revenge. And then following his killing of Amnon, he fled to Geshur, where his family on his mother's side came from and was protected by them. And uh, lived there for three years in the area of what is modern day Syria. And David, in this period of three years, began to long to be reconciled uh, with his son Absalom and uh, as a father that his son would return to him. But he faced a little bit of a struggle in that he was in this relationship with Absalom, both a father and a king. So as a father, he wanted to bring the boy back and. To Jerusalem and close to him. But as he was concerned as a king, that if he just brought Absalom back after uh, basically murdering his brother, taking his uh, the law into his own hands, uh, despite David's negligence and all of it, he had no right to do that. Absalom didn't. And so he didn't want to uh, model this idea that you can take the law into your own hands in the kingdom of Israel. Otherwise, the country would devolve into kind of anarchy. And so he's stuck between these two roles that he uh, that he has. And Joab, realizing that David wanted to have his son back, um, sent a wise woman from Tekoa to put this kind of case before him. And uh, in order to communicate to David that it wouldn't be wrong to bring his son back. But in extending mercy to Absalom, he would be like God, who is always looking for an opportunity to restore relationship with those that have done wrong. And so David allowed it. He allowed Absalom to return home, but with the restriction that Absalom would not see his face. Uh, he would know uh, David's uh, restoration as a father, but he would not know it as a king. David would not publicly Uh, endorse him so we pick it up in verse 21 we'll just read through it a little bit even though I know we covered this last time and then but it establishes the context for us a little bit so the king said to Joab all right I have granted this thing go therefore and bring back the young man Absalom and then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king and Joab said today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight My Lord, O King, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. And so Joab arose and he went to Gesher and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. And so Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Now, in all Israel, there was no one who was uh, praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, not a single blemish. On him. And when he had cut uh, the hair of his head, he did it annually at the end of every year, an annual haircut. He cut it because his hair was so thick that it was so heavy on his head. Makes you sick, doesn't it? Some of us in the room. And so when he cut it, nothing, as I said last time, wrong with an annual haircut, but he's pretty vain about his hair. He didn't just cut it and send it off to be. Uh, made into wigs for those that needed it or something noble like that. He would then weigh it and uh, in order to just kind of show off how thick of a head of hair he had. And uh, when they weighed it, it weighed about five uh, pounds. That's a lot of hair, five pounds even in a year. And uh, so he was pretty proud of his appearance. And to Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. And she was a woman of beautiful appearance. And so uh, David, with this wife, produced uh, very beautiful children, both Absalom and Tamar. And uh, Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Now, when David allowed uh, Absalom to come back into Jerusalem, but then refused to meet with him, um, this uh, this was really uh, uh, allowed a... Because he wouldn't bring this to kind of a solution, he allowed a problem to really go unaddressed and it really festered. David really should have uh, at this point brought Absalom back into Jerusalem. He should have immediately had a face to face with him. I don't know why we are so slow to understand what can be solved in face to face communication as human beings and even within the body of Christ. He should have brought the boy in, and he's a grown man now, and just sat him down and talked this thing over. And uh, he should have communicated to Absalom why he was upset with Absalom's actions, the awkward position that it put him in as both a king and as a father, explained his actions so that they wouldn't be misunderstood uh, by Absalom. And he should have uh, then explained to Absalom what his expectations were as a father and as a king concerning Absalom's life as his son and also as a a prince in Israel. Absalom, at this point, with the death of Amnon, is now the next in line to become the king of Israel. So he should have sat him down and should have told him, listen, this is what you did wrong. And I need to know from you that you are truly sorry and repentant over that, what you've done here and then in order for this relationship to be healthy, I need to have these kind of assurances from you. It was David. They're going to live for two years in this kind of a place. in uh, all Absalom. But by the time Absalom stands before his father, there will have been a five year period in which they did not talk. Three years when he was in Gesher, two years in which he was in Jerusalem, but they they didn't talk. That's an awful long time not to talk and resolve things. Sometimes we can get in a situation in our lives where um, we're in this relationship. It is a strained relationship uh, can have occur for a variety of reasons. And uh, nobody wants to take the first step. So who's supposed to take the first step in, in uh, communicating here? But I think in David's case it would have been good for because he was the man in authority. He was the father in this relationship. He was the king uh, in this relationship. So it was him really that ought to have approached Absalom. I remember when Karen and I first got saved, we um, we already had one child and we had another child on the way. And our first child was uh, very strong-willed, and um, so. Uh, we, I come to know the Lord Karen came to know the Lord a year later, and I realized we had some budding problems here with this two year old who was already fighting me as a fairly stubborn adult male myself uh, with the control of my family and uh, i wasn 't about to lose that battle, not at two, not really at any time, but certainly not at two years. She was waging a pretty good battle at that point in time. So I was new to Calvary Chapel in Napa. I probably shouldn't have said that. But anyway, um, I was new to the church there. And one of the great needs that I had as a brand new Christian was, what in the world does the Bible say about uh, raising children? And what does it say about specifically spanking children? Which is the forefront of my mind. So I asked one of the elders there at the church, and he informed me that, oh, no, that's that's uh, that. I know that's in the Bible, but you don't do that. Uh, You don't spank. So I I didn't know a lot about the Bible, but I knew you didn't do that with the Bible. So I just like disregarded that guy totally. I know him to this day. He's a wonderful man. I trust he's repented. Um, But anyway... So somewhere along the way there, we got a hold of a book that was called Spanking. Unfortunately, it's out of print. And the last man's name was Lesson, L-E-S-S-I-N. L-E-S-S-S-I-N. I like the title of it immediately. Um, but what he laid out in there was much more than spanking. He, he dealt with how to address rebellion in a child's heart and uh, how to Uh, uh, to not only address the outward actions, but also the inward attitude of rebellion. And he laid out a very, very nice plan in there for when it was necessary to spank and how to make all of it effective and to sit down with the child, ask the child what they felt they had done wrong there. If they could communicate that, that was great. Then that was something that they knew. If they didn't understand what they had done wrong, then to simply communicate that to them to ask them, you know, what they had done wrong there. What were they going to do the next time they were faced with that kind of a situation? I'm going to obey you, Daddy, or whatever it might be. And if they didn't know what the answer was, then it was an opportunity for us to sit down and just say, this is what you need to do when you face that the next time and then have that kind of confession from them and then pray uh, with them and reassure uh, of, of their love and then restore them back into kind of relationship with the rest of the family. And uh, so even though that book is out of print, what's the what's the book that's in print that covers that pretty well? Morgan. Shepherding a Child's Heart. So for those of you who are saying, well, he just lays that whole thing out and then doesn't give us any resources uh, on that. So Shepherding a Child's Heart, and we use that as a resource in the church in this in this area and also available in the bookstore and in uh, the um, in the library as well. But that's what needed to happen. David needed to, even with his adult son, sit down. What went wrong here? Um, what's your attitude toward that? Is it still an attitude of rebellion? How do we reconcile this thing, this relationship between one another? What are you going to do next time? And it would have headed off a, a terrible, terrible thing that's going to happen here. Uh, in in the history between uh, David and his son. And so David doesn't address it. Um, It's very common uh, in men. I won't say it's certainly not universal, maybe not a majority, but uh, it's very common for us to respond as fathers in the way that David did, and that is just get super angry over what our child has done, but then fail to. Um, do the harder things uh, in order to disciple them related to it in, in order that the relationship won't be damaged. And the person in the position of authority when push comes to shove needs to take that step. One of the things about disciplining children that's so fabulous and David seemed to lack it in his life just a little bit is it requires much more discipline of the parent than it ever does. Of the child and but it does a good thing in our lives, even when we would do it. So David doesn't do that. He just brings Absalom back into uh, Jerusalem, gives him the silent treatment. And again, clearly one of David's weaknesses was in handling personal conflict over and over again. You can see that he doesn't like it. He would rather ignore it than uh, address it. Some of us recognize that in ourselves, too. Uh, As a weakness, and I think that you could uh, hardly find a better candidate to study in all of the Bible uh, on how not to parent or how not to be a father. than David's example, number one, he was a poor personal example uh, for his children concerning his own temptation and and sin and self-discipline. And then when they followed him in his very same sins. Uh, then he failed to uh, rebuke them or chasten them over it and disciple them. And then he uh, compounded things by then failing to communicate to his children. And so, again, the silent treatment, not communicating what needed to get communicated so the relationship could move forward in a healthy way. He would just withhold his acceptance and, uh, not, and did not communicate to Absalom how he could regain his father's Uh, acceptance. And so it's a it's a sad scene. I go into it with that kind of depth because this thing is going to go sideways in a really big way. And uh, we need to understand um, exactly uh, why it does. And so uh, here is the the, uh, situation as as it uh, it it sits. And so he's back in here. There's no communication uh, going on. And uh, so, therefore, Absalom sent to Joab, who had kind of done the plot to bring him back into Jerusalem. And he wanted to have Joab come to him so he could send Joab to the king and give him a message. But Joab wouldn't come to Absalom. And when uh, he sent a second time, Joab wouldn't come as well. Apparently, Joab... um, had as much problem with Absalom's hair thing as I do. I'm just kidding. Uh, Joab, what this tells us about Joab and his relationship with Absalom is he he, we could look at Joab and say he worked this whole thing to bring Joab to bring Absalom back into Jerusalem because he knows that Absalom is next to be king. And so he wants to uh, get his foot in the door on the good side of, of the next king. But apparently has very little respect uh, for the vanity and, and the self-absorption of of Absalom. So Absalom's trying to get his attention. Absalom's got a lot of free time on his hands and he's trying to get the attention of some very, very busy people. And uh, so Joab doesn't respond to his calls. Now, Absalom, give him credit. He knows how to get a person's attention. He said to his servants, see, Joab's field is near mine and he has barley there, so Go set it on fire. And so Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Now, you could do that in the old days when you were the son of a king. Otherwise, it's not a good idea. Well, this did get Joab's attention. He arose, came to Absalom's house, and he said, Why have your servants set my field on fire? You get the the, uh, clear impression That it is a good thing that Absalom is the son of the king, or he'd probably have his head handed to him by Joab. Joab is really, really upset with this. And Absalom answered Joab and said, look, I sent to you saying, come here so that I may send you to the king. And here's what I want you have wanted you to communicate to the king. Why have I come from Gesher and sat around here for two years? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. Let him publicly restore me. But if there's iniquity in me, he he deems me worthy of of capital punishment for the killing of my brother. Then let him execute me. And so he's been waiting around for two years and. Wasting all of this uh, time in, in, in waiting to see what is his father going to do next. And basically his message to his father through Joab is tell my father either to see me face to face, that is extend forgiveness to me and give me a plan of restoration here or execute me for the death of Amnon. And, and in his mind, these current circumstances are completely unacceptable. And, and to be fair with Absalom, he is absolutely correct. And so Joab then went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, that is David, he came to the king, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and then the king kissed Absalom. And so David calls for Absalom. Absalom humbles himself before uh, David, bows down to him, and uh, as he humbles him, this humility that he's showing is just as, is as phony as a three dollar bill. But David does receive him, kisses him, which is communicating, uh, publicly communicating that I'm restoring my son, not only in terms of a family relationship, but also in in light of of the kingdom of of Israel. The meeting is very, very formal and uh, very superficial. And by the time it's done, the relationship is still very, very strained because David hasn't done what he needs to do. say, how do I know that four times? In verse 15, David is referred to as the king, the king, the king, the king, king. never as a father. This is just a formal ceremonial uh, national event that occurs here. Nothing is happening between father and son in in all of this. And so uh, David uh, kind of finally, Absalom finally gets before his father. And uh, this is as far as it goes. And uh, it seems to leave Absalom very deeply embittered against David and uh, convinces him that he needs to be overthrown as king. And so he begins a plan to establish that that very thing. Now, again, in uh, fairness to uh, Absalom, David had really failed him profoundly as a father. Because he failed to discipline Amnon in any way for the rape of Absalom's sister Tamar. And, 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 and Absalom gave David two full years to do something about that rape before he took the law into his own hands and, and killed his brother. And then as his father... Failed for five years to make any attempt at communication or reconciliation. And so here it seems that uh, Absalom looks at his life and he says, I have wasted seven full years of my life because of my father's failures as a father and as a king. And it really leaves him embittered uh, against David. Now, before we leave Absalom, because, again, he's going to be very prominent in the coming few chapters, there's an important lesson to learn related to Absalom and the relationship with David. Every single one of us in this room and in this world are children of imperfect parents. That's just the way that it is. We ought to develop a a self-help group. Children of sinning parents. We'd all go and meet in it. But that's just the way that it is. It doesn't minimize the damage that's been done to us. Doesn't minimize sin or any of these kind of things, depending on what kind of a relationship any of us have had with our parents. But everyone gets born to sinners. Even Jesus, when he was born into the world on the human side, was born to Joseph and Mary. And Joseph and Mary, he submitted to them, he was obedient to them, perfection being submitted to absolute imperfection, and yet he did it, the model, the, the role of the child and the family unit, relationship to, to his parents. What Absalom teaches us, and it's an important lesson, is that we are never to use the faults or the failures or the frailties of our parents as an excuse for rebellion against God or rebellion against them and their authority, unless they ask us to do something that's contrary to the word of God. If imperfection in parents is a legitimate reason for rebellion against them by children, then all children have been amply provided with a cause for rebellion. And uh, with excuses for that rebellion, the fact of the matter concerning Absalom is that Absalom, if he's going to use his father as an excuse for his future actions, he's only kidding himself. He's not kidding God. And God makes it very clear in the passage as, as the chapters unfold. The fact of the matter is Absalom was not a rebellious child because of some flaw in his father. Though that was the excuse he would hide his rebellion behind. He was rebellious because he was rebellious. He was an arrogant, proud, full of himself, full of a sense of entitlement. You say, what makes allows you to say that concerning this man? Because when Absalom ultimately leads a very successful revolt against his father and almost overthrows him as the king of Israel and would have done it if God had not intervened. And the early success of that rebellion against his father, he captures Jerusalem. And then just as Amnon, the brother that he killed, had received counsel from a friend by the name of Jonadab on how to get his way with Tamar, so too Absalom received counsel from a friend by the name of Ahithophel concerning how to make himself a stench to his father by lying with the ten concubines that David left in Jerusalem expecting to return to Jerusalem shortly. And so Absalom, when he is given the chance to show himself To be the moral superior of both Amnon, his brother, who he's killed, and David, his father, who he is rebelling against. He failed miserably. He takes and he rapes and lies with all ten of those concubines that have been left behind. And David never dreamed that his son would do such a thing to his wives. And when Absalom does that, he became Ten times the adulterer his father had ever been with Bathsheba. He became ten times the rapist that Amnon had ever been, the brother that he had killed. And so this rebellion didn't come out of some moral superiority on Absalom's part. At the core of this rebellion was just the wickedness of his heart. It was just a pure carnal power grab. And he was willing to do what Amnon never dreamt of, even despite the greatness of Amnon's wickedness, and that is willing to plot the overthrow of his father and the execution of his father in order to to accomplish it. As a Christian, I cannot blame my parents for any sinful activity in my life. And the reason that we can't do that as parents is because when we became born again, something greater than all of our histories with other people, including our parents, happened in our lives. God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit came into our lives, God himself, to give us the will and to give us the power To live the life that is described and commanded in the scriptures, no matter what our history is. And so we have, despite whatever our backgrounds are, we have God's word to instruct us on right and wrong. And we have the power of God to live this life. And so God takes and says, no excuses or blaming other people, parents or otherwise, For ongoing sinful activity in our lives. He has provided us with things that are infinitely greater. To allow us to overcome anything in our paths. To give us the blessing of being able to live a Christ-like life. And so Absalom, he was just looking for an excuse to rebel. And he found one in his father. But time is going to reveal that the real cause for this rebellion was in himself. He was just a sinner and a rebel at heart. And he's not the last uh, one of those. And so this is all that's going on. And so he begins in earnest now uh, to his rebellion against his father. And he said, after this had happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. This is known as a posse. So he and notice what he does. He would rise up early in the morning. And he'd stand beside the way to the gate. So every morning he'd get up, he'd get all these horses, all these chariots, fifty, uh, you know, prominent men all in a appropriate garb to run before him from wherever his house was to the gate of the city. He's gonna, he is going to endeavor to act presidential or to act kingly. All of these things, chariots, horses, 50 men, this kind of an entourage, these were all the trappings of being a king. He is essentially communicating and he is beginning a, a campaign of propaganda in the minds of the children of Israel to look at him, not merely as a prince or as a son of David, but to begin to see him and think of him in their minds consistently as being the next king of Israel. And so he's he. He could work for any presidential campaign in the United States of America. He has a great understanding of the importance of presentation, uh, the importance of how to stage something. Um, I don't I. okay. I'm not going to get into that. But anyway, he would have been uh, good related to uh, to all of that. And so he's got this whole big vibe that he's doing to begin to convince the people Uh, the uh, stealing the hearts of the people of Israel. And he does it physically in this way by presenting himself in this way. He would go to the and stand. Beside the way to the gate there in Jerusalem, the gate in the ancient world was an entrance, the main entrance into the city. And it's where the elders of the leaders of the city would meet. These were the prominent men, men of power, who would cases would be brought to them. They would then judge those cases on the basis of the law of Moses. Any cases that they couldn't handle would then be brought before the king, uh, David. And so uh, here he is. He comes to the gate. And uh, so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit, they needed judgment based upon the law of Moses. They came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to the person coming to the gate and say, what city are you from? And he'd say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right. This is legitimate, your complaint here. And uh, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Look at what my father, how what he thinks of you. I'm here early in the morning with all of these men. The great sacrifice to myself. And your case is a good case. And I'm here. I'm ready to judge it. Do you see that my father has provided any kind of a judge or an elder here to handle your case? And it is, it is, he, he's just doing the absolute worst thing that It's one of the most detestable things to me in any human being's life as I've run into it in my own life. It's a deliberate undercutting of his father and his father's authority by elevating himself and then trying to make his father the existing king or leader to look bad and declaring he would handle it much better. Now, here's the problem with that. What he's. Telling them is, David doesn't really care about you and your cases, but I care. You want a king that cares? I'm your king. David's too old. He doesn't care anymore. So this is the kind of, uh, of backstabbing that's going on in the, the situation. I don't, know, I, I don't know if the OJs were thinking of this when they wrote the song. I won't sing it for you. But here here's this thing where he's making David look bad. And the problem is, is is a complete lie because the woman of Tekoa, she gained a a ready audience with David. David was not distant from the people that he was he was commanding and uh, or overseeing as the king. And so here he is, he's undermining uh, the, the king in, in the eyes of the people. See, the problem that David has, and this, this happens with every single leader, and I've seen this, this scenario in church splits, not here, but in other places, over and over and over again. Here is somebody in some kind of a support position That has tons of time on their hands. And here is David who is ruling over an empire known as Israel and all of the surrounding land that has been conquered. His time and his life is so busy. Nobody can believe it. Absalom's doing nothing real slow every day. And then he gets up and tries to make David look like he's the guy that's doing nothing. And so he but he begins and people believe this kind of stuff and he starts to steer the people and their loyalty away from David. David, the one who had been so good to them. And moreover, Absalom would then say, oh, that I were made a judge in the land and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him a judgment. So in verse three, he talks about the king. He's not here. What's he doing for you? Here's what I would do. So he's presenting himself as as an alternative in the minds of the people. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand, take him, kiss him. I mean, he's got a sense for the dramatic and all, and uh, probably kiss all the babies and everything. And in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel. This is something he's doing to them who came to the king for judgment. And then the word so, in other words, in this manner, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And he did it. He did it through his presentation and through his words. And this is a a absolute snapshot of a workable plan for undermining virtually any leader in the world. And, And he accomplishes it, even as great a leader as David. Now, it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I have uh, which I made to the Lord. Now, 40 years, you think, wow, David's 110 and Absalom is we don't know in terms of the 40 years there. The uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation uh, of the Old Testament, uh, translates it four years. So it would indicate that David uh, Absalom put on this act for about four years in stealing the hearts of the nation Uh, Of Israel, that is uh, probably it is a typist error in here, and uh, it is four years. This would put David at probably about 60 years old when this uh, revolt of his son occurs about 10 years after his sin with Bathsheba. If if the Hebrew is is accurate and in the Hebrew, it is 40 years, then somehow the writer is measuring this event. Uh, from the time that David was anointed by Samuel in the village of Bethlehem uh, to become the next king of Israel, because that event was 40 years uh, back in the past. And so at this point in time, he comes to David and he asks permission to go to Hebron, which is where David began his rule for seven and a half years of his His reign, 40 year reign, was in Hebron, about 10 miles south of of Jerusalem. And he asked his father for permission to go there to pay a vow, he said, which I have made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow when I dwelt in Gesher in Syria. Uh, years earlier, here's what I said to God, he tells David, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And so he says, I made this vow. I remember it. I made it to the Lord. And if he's, and I made the vow that if he ever let me come back to Jerusalem, that I would uh, make this sacrifice to him. Absalom knows exactly how to get through uh, to his father in order to trap him in this way. He's going to launch his rebellion uh, against David from the, the city of Hebron. But how does he get down there with all of these men that he's aligned with him as a part uh, of, of the rebellion? So he appeals to David's spirituality. David uh, probably knew Absalom pretty well. And he's like any of us as parents, as Christian parents. We're excited at all uh, spiritual uh, 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 thirst or tendencies in our children's life. So here is a son that he recognizes isn't probably the most spiritual person in the world. Wants to keep about a vow to God. So of course David is going to keep, uh, allow him to do that. So he's manipulating his father at this point. So the king said to him, "Go in peace." It's really sad. Those are his final words to his son. He will never see that boy again alive next time he'll see Absalom, Absalom's body will be it'll he'll be a corpse. But not because of David. David just gives him the blessing. He has the father. This is a father's blessing. Go in peace. And so he arose and he went to Hebron. And then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you'll say Absalom reigns in Hebron. So he goes to Hebron. They're all they've been. Put out this plan has been launched. They're all in the major cities of Israel. As soon as they get word that Absalom has launched his rebellion, then they are to shout in all of these cities and villages Absalom is now uh, reigning as the king of Israel in Hebron. So that's the plan that they put together, very effective. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently, and they didn't know anything. So he's going to go down, keep this vow. He's a prominent person. He's a a high-ranking son of the king. So he invites these 200 very powerful men to join him in Hebron. They join him. They don't know that they're being drawn into a revolt against David. So one of the things that Absalom is doing is he probably recognizes that he's not that popular among leaders. He's popular among the people. So he takes these 200 men and uh, to go with him. And then when the declaration is made that he is, uh, uh, you know, conducting a coup against his father, then it would have looked to all of the people in the land. Oh, that he has, he has these 200 men, prominent men, who have joined him in the revolution. So it would have given an added weight to his rebellion that he didn't deserve and he couldn't have come up with in a legitimate way. So now he's working all the angles on this thing. Additionally, it would have deprived David of 200 men, high-ranking, skilled men, that would have come alongside of him as soon as word got out of on this rebellion. And so it's very, very crafty. It's despicable, but it's very, very crafty in how to pull off a rebellion. And so this is what he did. And then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, uh, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong. And for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. So the word went out. Absalom is leading a rebellion against his son. And uh, surprisingly, well, maybe not so surprisingly, but horrifyingly and, uh, and surprisingly to a pure heart, uh, the people of Israel fell in behind uh, Absalom in his rebellion against his father after all that David had done for these people. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousand. The ten years that he went through of hardship and being prepared to become the king. The conquering of Jerusalem, making it the capital of Israel, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the center of the national life, defeating all of their enemies in all directions. The prosperity that they knew as a people that they had never known before as a nation. And now here they are there in this place. And and uh, and no thankfulness at all. And uh, and they want to put them out to, to pasture and they join in increasing numbers. Absalom in this uh, rebellion against his uh, father. Now, this Ahithophel, another guy that's going to play prominently is, is all of this unfolds. We're told in verse 12 that he was uh, from a village of Gilo a village near Jerusalem and just a few miles away from Jerusalem. And when he heard about Absalom's rebellion against David, he readily joined Absalom's rebellion. He did not need to be tricked into it. He didn't have to be fooled into it. He joined him rapidly. Ahithophel had been one of David's counselors and one of David's closest friends. Uh, David would write of this painful betrayal in Psalm 55. And he said, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, speaking of Ahithophel, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and we walked to the house of God in the throng. And apparently... Uh, Absalom or Ahithophel had given the appearance of, you know, being reconciled and being good with David when when he wasn't. The reason for Ahithophel's rebellion against David is we learn from the genealogies in Second Samuel chapter 11 verse 3, and then 2 Samuel chapter 23 verse 34 that Ahithophel was none other than the grandfather of Bathsheba. And uh, so you can imagine. When word got out about David's violation of Bathsheba, how that must have hit Ahithophel. I mean, it must have just hit him like a ton of bricks. And then to learn that David had played a part and had actually more than a part, he had arranged for the death of his granddaughter's uh, husband, Uriah the Hittite. The, that news would have hit impacted any Jew in a gigantic way, any righteous Jew. But this was a violation against Ahithophel himself. Remember, then they came and David sent for Bathsheba. And they said, he's, she's the husband of Uriah the Hittite, and she's the daughter of uh, Eliam. And Eliam was Ahithophel's son. So David knew full well that what he was about to do with Bathsheba, he was about to do with his best friend's granddaughter. And when Ahithophel hears this whole thing, I mean, in his mind, the whole idea is, David, how in the world could you do this to my granddaughter? And how could you be so disrespectful against my family and be so disrespectful against me? Couldn't you have stopped for the sake of this relationship between you and I? so what happens here now in the uniting of David or the uniting of Absalom and Ahithophel is they are partners now in bitterness. Ahithophel has zero respect for Absalom, as we will see. The reason he joins the rebellion of Absalom is to carry out a very private war with David that he wants to have the final word on bitterness is a very strong unifying factor in people. It's a very unhealthy one. It's a very dangerous one, but it is a very powerful means by which people become unified and they stay unified. That's why the Bible warns us against the forsaking, even a root of bitterness in any of our lives. I'll tell you, um, well, I won't tell you. It's interesting when you look at this whole scenario and, uh, and you think about what David did to Bathsheba, what he did to, as a result, to Ahithophel, you would think that God would be on Ahithophel's side. In this battle against David rather than on David's side. And yet the exact opposite is going to happen. God is going to rise up and he is going to defeat the council of Ahithophel against David. And Ahithophel is going to end up hanging himself, committing suicide. And David is going to survive all of this to rule over the nation of Israel for many, many more years. God defeats Ahithophel, but he defends David. And clearly God knows something that we don't. He sees things very differently than most of us would. And God knew what Ahithophel didn't know in his bitterness. And what God knew was the private price that David would pay the rest of his life for his sin. And David did. All, you look at the Psalms all the way through this period in his life. And all the way to the end of his life. And he just spoke about the fact. My sin is ever before me. He regretted what he did. Until he left here for Abraham's bosom. But now he's in heaven itself. Because that's been cleared out now. God knew. And God knows Today. Those people that have sinned against us in the Christian life. And they've repented of it and they've confessed it and they've doing the best they can to serve God and walk with God. Now, God knows the private price that anyone with a soft heart toward God's pays privately for for their past sin. And that's why. If we decide to then, in our own bitterness, pile on them in addition to what God is doing or God knows what is happening in their life, God rises up and He will defend them and He will defeat us in that. That's why the Bible, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He is not kidding about that. When he says to us, you are not free to take revenge in this situation, you don't know enough to do it, leave it with me, I will repay. If we violate that, and we think that that's just something that he's put in the Bible as, you know, fodder for promise boxes, verses. And we say we don't take it seriously and we decide I can take this into my own hands and I'm going to make this person pay. Then God is going to rise up and he's going to come up against us. God had told David that there were going to be lifelong consequences for his sin. But that was never, ever to be used as an excuse by others to attack David And to abuse him. And it's very, very heavy uh, to me to watch where you would think God would be on Ahithophel's side, but he's not. And we must not get on the wrong side of God's grace and all of this. So instead of forgiveness, Ahithophel chooses the path of bitterness. And all he succeeds in doing is to add his death to the sequence. One of the problems that Ahithophel makes concerning David Because probably after this event occurred with his granddaughter, 10 years earlier, he leaves the service of David. He goes home to Gilo and he just stews in his bitterness. Do you believe that bitterness has the shelf life of a Twinkie? It does. It's either repented of. And handed to God is an act of worship to Him and forgiving the other person and putting the position the situation in His hands to work with or it'll just consume us. So he's ten years, he's steaming, all he is waiting for is the day that some miracle would occur, that he can hurt David as bad as David hurt him. And soon as he gets word of this, this is what he's been waiting all this time for. And soon as he hears about it, he's front and center to come out against uh, David. As if David was the same man that he was ten years earlier. It's crazy to believe. Concerning any other Christian who loves the Lord and for all of our faults and all of our failures has a desire to continue to grow in the Lord. It is insane to think that any of us are the person that we were a month ago or a week ago, much less what we were 10 years ago. And he thinks David is the same man that did that. Thing to his granddaughter. David's not the same man anymore. He'd grown a lot since his failure in his sin. In the New Testament, I don't think you can help but notice, realize how intolerant Jesus even is of unforgiveness on our part. The life of a Christian in light of how much God has forgiven us. So here is Ahithophel he defects toward Absalom, and because of his incredible stature in, in Israel, he gives a legitimacy to Absalom's rebellion that it wouldn't otherwise have had, and might not have exceeded without his legitimacy. By the time Absalom and Ahithophel's bitterness runs its course, Absalom's going to be dead. Ahithophel is going to be dead, and over 20,000 young men of Israel are going to end up dead because of their bitterness. And all of that blood, historically, right here in the Bible, that that rests not just on the head of, of Absalom, but that blood is also on the hands of Ahithophel because his bitterness drew him into a battle in a war that he had no business getting involved in. The danger of bitterness in our lives tonight. So you sit here and say, oh, my God, you're talking to me about this or that. You say, I've got my bitterness under control. One day you can wake up and you won't. And the devil will use it to draw you into a battle that will spoil your legacy of a lifetime of work for the Lord. That's how dangerous it is. The importance of repenting of that, especially in the light of these symbols of Jesus' body and of his blood that we're going to partake of tonight. Now, having said that, I just looked at the clock. And realize, in light of that, that this is a perfect place to Stop. So that we can partake of communion this evening. So if the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward.